Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. In May of 1889, an area in Pennsylvania, just southeast of Pittsburgh, experienced one of the heaviest downpours of rain in the history of the state. And as a result, a dam that was located at the South Fork Fishing and Hunting Club that had grown weak and unstable after years of neglect by its wealthy industrialist landowners uh, was on the brink of collapse. And on the morning of May the 31st, that dam was at a breaking point. And after efforts to try to divert some of the water to lessen the pressure on the dam had failed, a man by the name of John Park rode off in the rain to send telegraph messages to the nearby towns of South Fork, as well as Johnstown, that was 14 miles away, in order to alert them to the possibility of the dam breaking. And John Park was able to send a couple telegraph messages that morning to both of those places, but it appears that his warnings went largely ignored in Johnstown because there had been numerous false alarms about the dam breaking before. And just after 3 p.m., however, on this occasion, uh, it was different because the dam actually broke, sending an estimated 20 tons of water rushing toward Johnstown, gathering force and momentum with every mile, picking up rocks and dirt and mud and trees, and eventually taking up in its current houses, barns, animals, and even railroad cars. That's how strong the current had become. And just a little after 4 p.m., after moving toward this town for about an hour, the water slammed into Johnstown, going about the force of 40 miles an hour and reaching a height of over 40 feet. Over 2,200 people died in Johnstown that day from the flood, making it the worst natural disaster in U.S. history at that time. There were warnings of what was coming, but those warnings went unheeded. And the reason that I'm telling you that story this morning is because for hundreds of years in the Old Testament, God sent prophets to his covenant people to call them to repent of their sin and their idolatry and to warn them of the coming of exile if they failed to do so. There were warnings of the coming tragedy. There were warnings of coming disaster in the Old Testament to God's people, but they also went unheeded until the unthinkable actually happened. The people were taken into captivity. They went into exile. And that is where the book of Daniel begins, the people being taken into exile. And so this morning, uh, we're going to pick up on our series called Living in Exile, Hope from the Book of Daniel by looking at the reality of exile from Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn there to Daniel chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you should be able to find a paperback Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. And our text, I think, is on page 429 of those paperback Bibles that you can find uh, in your seats. So we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. I did preach an introductory sermon. It was an overview of the book of Daniel about a month ago where we saw that Daniel is a biblical book. It's a historical book. 
It's a literary book and it's a theological book. And we looked at a lot of the broad themes of the book of Daniel. I'm not going to retrace those this morning as we get into the text. Um, but if you didn't have a chance to listen to that, it might prove helpful for you uh, to go back and hear that. You can find it online. But this morning we're looking at Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And so if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. And then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate, and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord abides forever. You can be seated. So again, we're going to be looking at the reality of exile from Daniel chapter 1 this morning. And the first reality of exile that's faced is subjugation. The book of Daniel begins by setting it in the clear historical context of Babylonian military power. The first verse of the book says this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now, this happened in the year 605 B.C., 600 years before the time of Christ, and Nebuchadnezzar's assault on the city on this occasion resulted in the first of three waves of exiles that would be taken from Judah back to Babylon. Three waves of exiles. This is the first in 605. The second would occur six years later, in the year 597 B.C., eight years later, I think maybe I just said six, eight years later in 597 B.C., when Nebuchadnezzar again entered into Jerusalem and attacked Jerusalem because Jehoiakim at that time had rebelled against Babylonian power. The third instance would occur in 586 B.C., when the last king of Judah, King Zedekiah, also rebelled against Babylonian authority, and Nebuchadnezzar entered into Jerusalem, leveled it to the ground, destroyed the temple, and took the third and most severe waves of exiles back to Babylon from Judah. And the attack in 586 was by far the most severe and most devastating of those waves. But the subjugation begins in 605 B.C. That's when it begins when Babylon took some of the best and brightest from Judah, elite youths, according to verse 4. And they take these youths back to Babylon as a kind of political trafficking, we could call it. You know, we hear about uh, the dangers and the heinousness of sex trafficking today in all parts of the world, but this is a kind of political trafficking. It was designed to weaken opponents by abducting the best of the youth that the opponents had, while at the same time it would strengthen their own house because they would enlist the youth into their own service. But this, of course, would leave parents to grieve children, 
being taken away by these foreign military powers, never to see their children again, but powerless to prevent it in the face of the superior might of the Babylonian army. I mean, it's hard to imagine the horror of watching your children abducted and brought under subjugation by these foreign powers, never to see them again. And we're told in verse 6 that among these youths that were taken are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Now, at the time of their captivity, these individuals are probably between the ages of 14 and 17. We know that they're youths because the text tells us so. They're probably between the ages of 14 and 17. Okay, so very young. And they would be snatched away and subjugated by a foreign army, taken away from everything that's familiar to them, taken away from their family, taken away from their familiar surroundings, taken away from a language that they could speak and that was familiar to them, to dwell as strangers in a strange land. That was about a four-month journey away. That's how long it would take to walk from Judah and to be taken into captivity in Babylon. They're four months away from reaching their homeland. I mean, with today's technology and, and air travel, I mean, there's nowhere in the world that it would take four months to reach to get back home. But that's how far they are taken from their home. And while it's true that we may not have experienced this kind of geographical exile taken away from everything that's familiar, but we can say that in a sense, exile is the experience of everyone. Exile is the experience of all of us living because we all live outside of our true home, the true home that God intended for us to dwell in. We're all living outside of Eden. And because of that, we regularly experience things we were not made for, things that we were not designed to experience. We regularly experience sickness and suffering and toil in our work and conflict and war. And we experience the pain and sorrow of being torn away from loved ones by death and by the grave. So exile is a real experience for all of us in a very deep sense. And as Christians, our spiritual exile is especially true as we find ourselves living in a morally corrupt world that stands in opposition to biblical truth and the kingdom of God. And perhaps that's true in an increasing way in our own culture, that we feel spiritually exiled as Christians, even from the place in which we find ourselves dwelling. But even in this passage, Judah's exile hinted at something that was more than just geographical, more than it was just military or national or political. And the exiles from Judah that were subjugated to Babylonian, Babylonian power would have been tempted to understand this exile in the way that the Babylonians would see the exile. And that was a, as a way of kind of a spiritual discrediting of the God of Judah in the face of the superior power of Babylon, Babylon and Babylonian gods. Notice that we're specifically told here in verse 2 that Nebuchadnezzar nets more than human specimens when he invades Judah. It's not just humans that he takes. And the text wants us to know this very clearly. We read that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, was given into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought these vessels to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Now, why do we get that detail? But what we're to understand from this, at least from a Babylonian perspective, is that he didn't just take some of the people of Judah. He took some of the vessels of the temple of Judah's God as a way of securing bragging rights of sorts. 
This is the way the, the ancient world thought about a lot of these things. It gave them bragging rights to the apparent superior powers of Babylon and its gods and conquering Yahweh, the God of Judah, who was obviously too weak to protect his people. He was too weak to protect his city. He was too weak to protect his temple and too weak to protect himself in the face of the strength of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, and Babylon's gods. But while it might appear that Nebuchadnezzar is the one with all of power at the beginning of Daniel chapter 1, subjugating the people of Judah to his power, while it might appear that way, Daniel wants us to know for certain that God, the God of Israel, the God of Judah, is the one who's actually in control. And he does this by giving us a confirmation. So that's the second thing that we see. Confirmation. If I get that to advance. Will you advance that for me, Henry? Second thing we see is confirmation. So don't overlook a key detail in verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So it might seem that Nebuchadnezzar is driving the action here at the beginning of the book of Daniel. But it's the God of Israel who is actually the one pulling all of the strings. The events of 605 B.C., the taking of some of the members of the royal family and of the nobility, these events are not actually a sign giving evidence to the superior powers of Babylon and its gods. It's actually the result of divine activity, and it's happening because God is the one who is orchestrating these events, and they're unfolding according to his plan. And so it's true that Babylon may have conquered some of Judah's people. It is not true that Babylon conquered Judah's God. And that becomes very clear as we continue to read the book of Daniel. But it does raise the question, why would God allow his people to be carried away into exile? Why would God allow the nations to mock his people, to gloat over his people, to discredit his name, and to scoff at his power and his honor and his glory. Why would God do that? We have to remember that Daniel here is not just providing us with a confirmation that the God of Israel is still on his throne and is ruling over the events of history, including the events of the exile in 605. It's more than that. It's more than just a confirmation that God is still ruling and reigning. Daniel is providing us with a confirmation of God's word and God's faithfulness to his word. Consider that at the time of Moses, before the people had even entered the promised land, way back in Deuteronomy, God had informed the people what the consequences would be if they broke the covenant and committed idolatry and worshipped other gods. It tells them very clearly back in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And this is what he says there. Listen to this. This is God speaking to the people before they even enter into the promised land through Moses. He says, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. You shall father sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall go into captivity. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land. The reality of exile is a confirmation of God's word. 
here in Deuteronomy because the people repeatedly broke the covenant and worshipped other gods. That's what we're reading about all the way through First and Second Kings. And now what we read about at the beginning of Daniel is a confirmation of God's word here in Deuteronomy, that they would be exiled, removed from the land, and a nation that they know not will come and pounce upon them. And it comes to pass in history. But the plundering of the vessels are also a confirmation of God's word. The taking of these vessels into Nebuchadnezzar's house and the house of his God is a confirmation of God's word as well. A hundred years before this happens, okay, so this happens in 605, a hundred years before this, the people of Israel in the northern kingdom, remember that after the time of Solomon, the covenant people are divided into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel had been exiled to the Assyrians in the year 722. They're already exiled by the Assyrians in 722. Now just after that, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, his name was Hezekiah, was concerned about the Assyrians also attacking Judah. And so he prayed to God for protection from the Assyrians, and God delivered him from the hand of the Assyrians at that time. So Hezekiah gets delivered from being exiled by the Assyrians. And after that happens, the Babylonians, who are under the thumb of Assyrian power at this point in time, remember this is 100 years earlier, and so the Babylonians are under the thumb of the Assyrians, but they want to get out of it. And so the Babylonians send envoys to King Hezekiah. And when Hezekiah receives these Babylonian envoys, he shows them all the treasures and wealth of his house. And after he does this, the prophet Isaiah pronounces to King Hezekiah. He comes and approaches him in Isaiah chapter 39, verses 6 and 7. And Isaiah says this to King Hezekiah. He says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the place of the king of Babylon. So even the plundering of these vessels is a confirmation of God's word. Now we might wonder, why is such a severe judgment pronounced upon Hezekiah for this? Why would that happen? Well, Ian Duguid offers us some insights in his commentary, and he says this. When Merodach-Baladan, that would have been the ruler of Babylon at the time, remember this is 100 years earlier than Nebuchadnezzar, so the leader at that time was Merodach-Baladan, he's the one who sends the envoys, and he sent those envoys. When he did that, he was soliciting Hezekiah's help and support in his ongoing struggle against Assyria. So when Hezekiah showed his envoys around his treasure houses, he was responding positively to overtures of alliance and seeking to show that he had the resources to be a useful ally against Assyria. So in spite of the miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem, Hezekiah was now looking to political means for solving the Assyrian problem through alliances with Babylon. Because Hezekiah sought to preserve his treasures by trusting in Babylon, the Babylonians would come and carry off everything in his palace, including some of his own descendants. And so again, the reality of exile is unfolding according to God's plan. It's not an evidence of Babylonian power. It's evidence of God working out his plan. It's all unfolding according to divine plan and all unfolding according to the word of God. And so what we don't want to miss here is in the opening verses of Daniel, we're being provided here with a confirmation that the word of God will not and cannot fail. It will come to pass. All of the blessings that God promises in his word will come to pass. And all of the judgments that he threatens in his word will come to pass. It may take some time. 
It, t- it may take more time than our lifetime to see that, but it will happen. The Word of God will be fulfilled. Do you believe that? That the Word of God will be fulfilled. Do you believe that? Again, it may take time, but God is faithful to His Word. And if you're a believer here this morning, what that means is you can take comfort and encouragement in that. That all of God's promises in time will be fulfilled unto you, believer. That your body will be raised in the age to come to dwell with God in glory forever and ever. That is sure and that is certain because God is faithful to his word. But perhaps you're here this morning and you're not a believer. Maybe you're not a Christian. We're glad that you're here, but you need to know that all of the judgments that God threatens in his word, those will come to pass as well. But the good news of the gospel is that you can be rescued from that judgment. Because God also promises that everyone who confesses his or her sin turns from those sins and turns to Jesus for salvation and follows Jesus as Redeemer and King, will be delivered from judgment, will be forgiven for his or her sins, and will be welcomed into fellowship with God and eternal life forever. A promise is made to you if you will do that. And so if you haven't done that, I urge that you would do that this morning. But we all need to know that if we walk in faith with Jesus and we follow him as Lord and King, that doesn't mean our life is going to be easy because we're in exile. All of us are, in a sense, in exile, and it's not going to be easy because there's pressures in exile of assimilation. So that's the third thing we see. The first reality is subjugation. The second reality is confirmation. The third reality is assimilation. So those of Judah's royal family and of the nobility, these youths without blemish that we read about, notice that they were not brought to Babylon in order to be executed, put to death. They weren't even brought to Babylon in order to be imprisoned or incarcerated. They were brought to Babylon in order to be assimilated fully into the culture and to be made part of a systematic grooming program to serve Babylonian interests. That's why they were brought to Babylon. In fact, this Babylonian program for assimilation is explicitly revealed to us and explained to us beginning at the end of verse 4 and all the way to the end of verse 7, which is where we stopped our reading this morning. So we read that these young, flawless intelligent, good-looking recruits were to be taught the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans are simply the upper class of the Babylonians. Same people. When you read Chaldeans, you're reading about the Babylonians. They were to be taught the literature and language of the Chaldeans. We also read that the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. That's what's going to happen when they're brought to Babylon. So in other words, they're being enrolled at the royal palace of Babylon, royal palace university, in order to earn a three-year degree in Babylonian cultural studies, where they're going to learn the language of the Babylonians, but they're also going to learn the literature. They are going to learn and hear about the stories of the Babylonians, stories that embody Babylonian virtues and Babylonian values, so that they would incorporate and adopt these values and virtues as their own. They're going to be exposed to Babylonian philosophies that promote the Babylonian worldview, so that they will become Babylonians in the way that they think, the way that they act. We also should pick up here that in addition, these recruits would develop an increasing sense of dependence 
upon the king for their well-being because he's giving them food. But it's not just that they have an increasing sense of dependence. They will have an increasing sense of the king's benevolence toward them. When they have an increasing sense of that benevolence, their resistance will be weakened because how bad could it possibly be? How bad could the king of Babylon possibly be? Yeah, he exiled us from our home area. But day after day, we're eating of the king's table and drinking the king's wine. How bad could it be to serve in Babylon and to serve Babylonian interests? But also we learned that not only were they enlisted in a re-education program, they're also renamed. Not just re-educated, they're renamed. And we see this in verse 7. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. Now, it's important for us to detect here that Daniel and his friends have names at the start that are distinctly tied to Israel's God. Their names reflect their belonging and their relationship with Yahweh, God of Israel. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious. Mishael means who is what God is. And Azariah means Yahweh is my help. They are distinctly tied to Judah's God. It's also important for us to know that the names that they're given in exchange for these names are distinctly tied to Babylonian gods. They're distinctly tied to Babylonian gods. And we have to understand that naming is associated with authority and power and control and ownership. And that's why this is happening here. It's a demonstration of authority to rename these individuals. All of you here have a name. I know most of your names. And I assume that most of the names that you have were given to you. You didn't pick them. They were given to you by your parents because you belonged to your parents. You were theirs, and so they exercise an authority to give you a name that you bear even now, right now. The name that you go by is the name that your parents gave you. We got a dog from a litter uh, from Jim and Amy Spiegel. Some of you might remember when the Spiegels were here, but they had a litter of nine dogs, and we got one of those dogs. But while they were... Um, welcoming those dogs and training those dogs a little bit before they sold them, they gave them all names. And our dog was named Eve by the Spiegels. But when we bought her and brought her home, we didn't call her Eve anymore. We named her Isabel. Our dog is named Izzy because she belonged to us now. She was brought to our home. She was our dog, and so we gave her our name. Shouldn't surprise us that when the English purchased New Amsterdam, that they got rid of its Dutch name, it was named after a Dutch city, Amsterdam, they got rid of that and gave it an English name, because it was theirs now. Instead of calling it New Amsterdam, they called it New York, because York reflects that it belongs to the English, because that's what we do. We stamp our ownership and authority upon things by naming them. I remember as a young kid, I watched a TV miniseries uh, called Roots, Alex Haley's Roots. Some of you might remember this if you're as old as I am in your 50s now. Roots was a story of Alex Haley's ancestors who had been brought to this country as slaves. 
was telling the story of these slaves, and I very distinctly remember as a kid watching a powerful scene in which one of the main characters, one of, one of his, his main descendants that was brought over here, his name was Kunta Kinte, and his white captors were insisting that he relinquish that name and go by Toby, because in their mind, he belonged to them now. And so he was not to be referred to as Kunta Kinte, but as Toby. Because what they're trying to do is disassociate him from any connection, any loyalty, any association with his homeland. And to adopt him purely as their own now. And that's exactly what's going on here in Daniel chapter 1. What's behind this renaming program is removing all attachments and all connections to their covenant identity in order to give them a new identity as Babylonians who will be loyal to the Babylonian king and loyal to serve Babylonian interests and the interests of the kingdom. When we think about this assimilation program as a whole, here's really what it's about. The assimilation program in Babylon was about training you, training these captors in order to think like, talk like, act like, worship like, and live like Babylonians. That's what the program is about. Why should any of this have importance for us? Well, it's important for us because throughout Scripture, Babylon doesn't just stand for an ancient city. Babylon often stands in Scripture as a picture of the anti-kingdom that stands throughout history against the kingdom of God and against the covenant people. This is why we're reading about Babylon at the book of Revelation again. It's because Babylon stands as this anti-kingdom. And the spirit of Babylon is still very much at work in our own time and in our own place. And it's at work to cunningly train you to think like, talk like, act like, worship like, and live like you belong to the world. To erase your covenant identity and to live like you belong to the world. To think like you belong to the world. In our godless culture today, God is treated as either as if he doesn't exist or he is irrelevant. And in the absence of God, the world is more than happy to disciple you. And the world will disciple you. The world disciples you through our cultural institutions, our schools, our universities, our entertainment, about how you're supposed to think, talk, act, and live with regard to all kinds of things. How you're supposed to Think, talk, act, and live with regard to sex. I don't mean just sexual orientation. I mean the fact that you are a sexual being. The world has a curriculum for you. And it is instructing you how you're supposed to think about sex. How you're supposed to talk about sex. How you're supposed to act with regard to sex. The world has a curriculum and it is training you. It is instructing you in these things. Not just that. It's instructing you in gender. What are you supposed to do with that category? It has a curriculum for that. How you're supposed to live with regard to dating. Remember Daniel and his friends. They're teenagers. So listen, I'm I'm not talking to just adults in the room. I'm talking to you, youth. You might be 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. This applies to you. The world has a curriculum for you. The world is training and instructing you and discipling you. What you're supposed to think about, how you're supposed to talk about, how you're supposed to live with regard to dating. And that's different than God's curriculum. 
But the world wants to disciple you in these things. So you'll think like the world. You'll live like the world. You'll talk like the world. You'll worship like the world. And it's not just that. I mean, it's, 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 it's almost nothing that the world doesn't touch with its curriculum. How you're supposed to think, talk, act, and live with regard to marriage, family, pregnancy, and the sacredness of life, science, spirituality, your work, your career, your money, your health, your beauty, and the meaning of life itself. We're all being instructed by the world with how we're supposed to deal with differences, those who don't share our opinions. And the world's curriculum says that what you do is you smear people like that and you demonize people like that. That's not what the Word of God says to do. Are we listening to the world's instructions or God's instructions? Because the world wants to form and fashion you after its mold. It's happening all the time. And of course, what the world wants most is to strip you of your Christian identity so that you will adopt the false versions of identity that's offering. Whether that's on the one hand to convince you that you're nothing but a clump of randomly firing neurons that developed from lower life forms by purely naturalistic and materialistic mechanisms, or on the other hand, if it's trying to convince you that you're your own God with no accountability to anyone or anything higher than yourself. Neither of those are things that the Bible says. But the world wants to strip us of our identity. And so the truth is, what we have to be alert to is that God has a will for His people, and the world has a will too. The world has a will as well. You're all being catechized. That's not in question. You're all being catechized. The question is whether you're listening to the world or whether you're listening to God speak in Scripture. That's the question. Now, to be clear, what's needed is not so much a radical separation from the dangers of the world around us. That's not what we see happening in Daniel. Of course, there's unique circumstances in Daniel. They wouldn't have been able to do that if they wanted but maybe more importantly, this kind of radical separation is not something we see prescribed in the New Testament for Christians either. Here's something we have to keep in mind. A ship doesn't sink because of all the water that's around it. A ship sinks because that water gets inside of it. And so you have to guard vigilantly what gets in your heart. That's why the Proverbs say, to guard your heart with all vigilance. Because from it flow the springs of life. What you think, how you talk, how you act, how you live, what you worship is determined by what's in your heart. And so you have to guard that vigilantly. Guard your hearts. And even then, it's just really hard to resist the pressure to assimilate to the world around us. It's really hard to resist that. And what you need in order to resist that without selling out to the world as a follower of Jesus, what you need is an identity that's strong enough to anchor you and to withstand the world's attempts to define you and mold you. Where are you going to find that? Where are you going to find that identity that grounds you and anchors you? Well, let me remind you this morning, Christian. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, let me remind you that you've been given a name. And not just given a name by your parents. You've been given a name by God. When he marked you out in baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You belong by covenant to the triune God through Jesus 
who loved you and gave himself for you to redeem you, to rescue you from the domain of darkness and the bondage of sin and to deliver you from subjugation to death and to sin and to rescue you from exile. And the identity that is conferred upon you by his redemptive work, by grace through faith, is the identity of saint. You're a saint. That's who you are. If you're united to Jesus by faith, you're a saint. And you're not a saint because you've merited it somehow. You're not a saint because the church has conferred that status upon you, like the way it works with the Roman Catholic Church. You're a saint by virtue of believing in Jesus and by virtue of what he has accomplished for you. You're a saint. Do you think of yourself that way? Do you embrace that identity? Do you think of that title being in front of your earthly given name? Saint Brandon. Saint Hudson. Saint Sarah. Saint Betsy. What I'd like to do right now, and I don't have the time to do it, I'd like to say that to every single one of you. Because that's who you are in Christ. And so the calling is to think like, to talk like, to act like, to live like, and worship like the saint that you are. Because that's the identity you've been given. Set apart for holiness by God to live before a watching world with truth and with grace and in love. Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed that you're a saint. You know, it has negative connotations in our world today. Do not be ashamed of that. I'm talking to young people again as well. Don't be ashamed to own your identity as a saint in Christ Jesus. Because in that is life. In that is blessing. And in that is glory. Don't be ashamed of that. So in the midst of the reality of exile, in our own spiritual Babylon today, don't forget who you are. And don't forget whose you are by the precious blood of Jesus shed for you, believer. And let's remember the exhortation of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't be conformed to, the, to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We're not to be assimilated to be like the world. We're not being conformed to the world. We're being conformed to Jesus, who loved us, who lived for us, and who died for us, to set us free from our subjugation, to set us free from exile, to be citizens of heaven. He set us free to live as saints, and he set us free so that we're no longer slaves, but we're children of our Heavenly Father through him. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true and that you're faithful to your word. And Father, we pray this morning that if anyone is in subjugation to the forces of darkness, to the domain of darkness, that Lord, you would do a great work of your spirit by delivering them from the domain of darkness and bring them into the light of your Son. And Father, uh, for the ways that we have let our guard down, we have let the ways of the world into our hearts, the ways that we've assimilated the values and the virtues of the anti-kingdom into our lives. Lord, would you help us identify those, to repent of those, and to walk with you faithfully as our Redeemer and King with the hope that we will be conformed to your image and that we will dwell with you in everlasting glory as part of your kingdom. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.